I I think the day is over when pastors can coddle parishioners and uh, work very hard not to offend them. In fact, the gospel is a great offense, and it offends us more uh, the extent to which we are committed to the dominant ideology. Uh, I I understand how risky that is and how dangerous it is, uh, but that is exactly how risky and how dangerous it was in Germany. Uh, And uh, a very small part of the church had the courage to do that. But I I think there are many lay people who understand this as well. And what uh, preachers have to do is to find allies uh, among lay people. Not all lay people have succumbed uh, to the dominant ideology. Very many lay people know better than that, and they are waiting uh, to be empowered uh, and uh, and verified in their hunches uh, about what the gospel requires of us. are listening to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm happy that you are. Before I get started, if you have not yet done so, go to patreon.com slash can I say this at church or can I say this at church.com and click the button for Patreon. Become a supporting person that listens to this show. This show is entirely supported by the listeners and I am entirely, entirely grateful for that. And I would encourage you to do so if you haven't. You get some perks and new things coming. I'm going to try to do some videos only for y'all, uh, where I'm just hopefully doing that, and, and you, you'll hear a bit from me, a little bit different flavor, uh, but we'll get there later. Today, though, I am so flipping excited. Uh, today's guest is Walter Brueggemann, and he has to be one of the most influential biblical scholars of our time. He's authored over 100 books, and I'll say that again, 100 books. Many of us have never read 100 books, and he's written over 100 books. His works have greatly influenced me. I love the way that he talks about prophecy and what prophetic voices are and what a prophetic imagination is and what when we think about the Old Testament and just scripture as a whole, what the story and the overarching themes are and how that impacts our posture for how we seek to live in the world today as Christians. I really think you're going to enjoy what Walter and I had to talk about. So at the end of the show, as you're listening, please shoot me uh, some feedback, some comments. Let me know what you thought. Share it with your friends. Here we go. Walter Brueggemann. Roll the tape. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, thank you so much for joining me on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, we alluded to it a minute ago uh, before we started, but I am very excited to speak with you, and and thank you for taking the time uh, to, to be here today. I'm very glad to get to be with you. Thanks. So normally, uh, I have people introduce themselves a bit, but I'd like to forego that, mostly because I feel like um, you have been prolific enough of a, of a writer and an influence in so much of church and, and Christianity, at least in the, in the circles that I'm in, uh, that, that I would like to not belabor that point. And so I'd like to start with a slightly different question. Overall today, I want to talk a little bit about prophecy, uh, pr- prophetic you know, interpretations of Scripture, and then just kind of what that means for today. But to build that foundation, what do you think... Or, or what purpose does the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, have for us practically today in quote-unquote the West, but for today's purposes, I guess we could say America or Canada, but I live yeah. in America. Yes, right. Well, 
the Bible and therefore the Old Testament, I think, articulates uh, an alternative narrative of what it means to live responsibly and joyously in God's world. Uh, the dominant narrative in uh, our American culture uh, is a, a narrative of fear, anxiety, accumulation, and violence. And uh, the counter-narrative of the Bible uh, provides the foundation for a different kind of life uh, that focuses upon uh, uh, generosity, abundance, and neighborliness. And uh, I think today that our work in uh, biblical interpretation is to show how the dominant, uh, the, the primary narrative of the Bible contradicts the dominant narrative of our culture. Uh, obviously, uh, there are many... Uh, what I would call fake interpreters who uh, read the Bible as though it served uh, the dominant uh, narrative of our society, but I think that's uh, uh, not an honest case to make. What do you mean by that, where they read it in a way that it serves our society? Specifically well, what... it's, all the con it's all the confusion of God and uh, nation, and uh, 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 we, we read the text as though America is the chosen people, and as though our greed is God's will, and as though our uh, militarism uh, serves uh, being chosen as God's people, etc., etc., etc. And in fact, it is the same seduction uh, that the German church uh, practiced uh, under Hitler, uh, in which it uh, found it easy enough uh, to uh, accommodate the gospel uh, to the claims of national socialism. And I think uh, much of the American church is engaged in the same practice. So that's, from what I remember reading about your, your biography, that is a lot of your background. And so what would you say are two or three similarities, I guess, of the Christian faith in Germany at that time and where we're at today? Well, I, th I think it was uh, uh, the, the assumption that uh, the main function of uh, Christian faith and the Church was to le le legitimate the regime. Uh, and uh, behind that uh, uh, is uh, enormous anxiety uh, about the collapse of uh, old certitudes that have an economic spin-off and an appeal to authoritarianism uh, as though uh, somebody uh, is the master who can uh, solve all these problems and work out uh, all of these issues, and that we are willing uh, to lose our uh, civil rights in the interest of security and prosperity. I think that's exactly what happened in Germany, uh, because after the First World War, uh, there was a great failure of nerve in Germany. Uh, the economy was not doing well, and uh, uh, Hitler presented himself uh, as the one who could uh, solve all these problems, and uh, very many Germans uh, simply signed on for that authoritarianism. I think we're, uh, I think we're moving in the same direction. I don't disagree, but it is disheartening to hear that, because... I have a lot of life left ahead of me, and I would rather that specific chapter in history not really ever repeat itself. But that's yep. that's probably naive of me to say that it won't, because I think you're right. Things progressively tend to get worse. With that in mind, what is the role of a prophet? Like, how do we today know when someone's speaking out and, and they're raising their voice, so to speak, and they're finding what they're called to say? How do we weigh and test that? Uh, either biblically or extra-biblically, how do we weigh and know that what they're saying is a word that we should heed? Well, it's not, uh, it's not easy or obvious, but I think that we have to have a, a very clear sense of the biblical revelation of the character and will and purpose of God. 
And I have no doubt that the uh, main trajectory of biblical faith is that God wills generous, abundant, peaceful, just neighborliness. And uh, any voice that serves a cause other than that, I think, is a false voice. Uh, so uh, uh, that that is that is not uh, an identification with liberalism or conservatism. I think there can be responsible conservatives and responsible liberals, uh, but a Christian conservative or a Christian liberal uh, has to be uh, engaged on behalf of the common good that practices peace on the basis of economic justice. Uh, and I don't think it uh, I don't think it's complex uh, to see the main uh, outlines of that plot. Right. If you were that voice giving voice to that and tomorrow economic justice was achieved, what does that look like and how does the church pull alongside that in unison? Well, uh, I think uh, the church is very good at uh, neighborly charity, and I and I don't discount that. I think that's really important. But the church also has to be engaged at a policy level, uh, urging that we have uh, laws and statutes and regulations uh, that protect the common good, that provide viability uh, for economically vulnerable people. Uh, and uh, uh, we are now uh, uh, in a season of, uh, of political reactionism in which deregulation is unleashing predatory powers and uh, the uh, uh, absurd uh, tax law that was passed uh, simply uh, uh, monopolizes the wealth for the powerful few at the expense of the many who are vulnerable, and the church has to be engaged in those issues uh, to redress uh, those uh, cynical acts of injustice. How does a church—well, I guess here's my question. So if I was a pastor, which I don't think I could ever do, but if I was a pastor, there's a part of me that I don't know that I would have the gumption to stand up and, and say that in church, knowing that the people in that church are probably not going to continue to attend there, and so I've got a vested self-interest in not in not yeah, doing well, that. I, I don't. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's uh, the, the aim to uh, to upset or antagonize people. Um, but what what a what a and I don't think it's easy. But what a pastor needs is a long-range teaching strategy, so that the congregation gets introduced to interpretive categories so that they can read uh, what's going on in our society differently, which was the task of the prophets. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I think the day is over when pastors can coddle parishioners and uh, work very hard not to offend them. In fact, the gospel is a great offense, and it offends us more uh, the extent to which we are committed to the dominant ideology. Uh, I, under, I understand how risky that is and how dangerous it is, uh, but that is exactly how risky and how dangerous it was in Germany. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a very small part of the Church had the courage to do that. But I, th I think there are many lay people who understand this as well, and what uh, preachers have to do is to find allies... Uh, among lay people. Not all lay people have succumbed uh, to the dominant ideology. Very many lay people know better than that, and they are waiting uh, to be empowered uh, and, um, and verified in their hunches uh, about what the gospel requires of us. Yeah, I would agree with that, mostly because I hope I'm doing something similar to that in in the effort of this of this podcast of just voicing and questioning and and pressing issues that bother me and I find a lot of 
pushback, but I also find an overwhelmingly more people are like, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to wrestle with this because it needs to be wrestled with. For a for a pastor preaching on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day, what are some of those categories? You talked about the categories of the prophets. What are some of those? Can you drill in on those a bit? Well, the way I formulated it lately is uh, that the task of uh, the preacher of a prophetic preaching uh, is not to harp on specific issues, but it is to imagine the world as though the God of the gospel were a real agent. Uh, and if you if if one does that, if you imagine that God, uh, the God of the gospel, is a real agent, uh, then we have to identify the things in which we are implicated that contradict the purposes of God. That's not very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see what contradicts the God of the gospel, and what we know is that matters that contradict the God of the gospel eventually end in profound trouble. So you cannot you cannot uh, separate children from families uh, and displace them and not expect outcomes that are negative. That is a contradiction of the God of the Gulf. That's an easy case. But you can find many other cases. Uh, the, the whole business of monopolizing health care for moneyed people uh, and uh, proposing uh, junk coverage uh, for uh, poorer people that doesn't help people at all with their health care, that's a contradiction of the God of the gospel, etc., etc., etc. So it's not, uh, it's not scolding, it's not harping, it's teaching people how to think gospelly about the reality of the world. Yeah. And we can do some of that because when people come to church, they expect us to talk differently about many things. And we ought to be doing that. We ought not to be an echo of what people thought before they come to church. Yeah, and if we are echoing, what I'm hearing you say is, we need to stop coddling people to make them feel good, that that's not the purpose that you come to church. You, that, that's correct. There should be some stretching. I, 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 understand, I understand pastoral care. I understand pastoral gentleness. I'm not against any of that. Uh, but but that's, that's different than uh, letting the illusions of the dominant narrative become normative for baptized people. Yeah. When you said counter-narrative earlier, is that what you mean, that Scripture is speaking out against whatever the current culture is, or a specific culture? Well, I'm talking specifically about our culture. I, I think uh, I think you could say the same in many other contexts, but, but I'm not interested in that kind of uh, generalization. I am interested in the, in the place where God has put us in the midst of this dominant narrative. Yeah, which is a narrative, as I've said, of fear, anxiety, mm-hmm. scarcity, and violence. I agree. Yeah, we did in an adult uh, vacation Bible school since the parents were already there, and someone brought up in it a few months ago that uh, they wondered why churches don't engage in hard conversations more. And I remember my pastor saying, "He's like, you know, it's 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 hard to do that because we're really good at at scaring people into continuing to come to church." And that he he thought maybe, or I hope I don't put words in his mouth, that that there may be um, a, a certain type of a mentality in in churches and pastoralships that I need you to be a certain level of scared because that's what keeps you coming in, um, which is the wrong think, I, way to I, do I, church. I yeah, I don't think it's a matter of scaring people. I think it's a matter of helping people think through what it means to be baptized, uh, and you know we we. In the Christian congregation, baptized people have signed on for this particular version of reality. And uh, we've not done a good job of helping people think about what that means. Uh, so there's, there's no scare in it. In fact, um, it's, it's, a, it's a gift to come down where you ought to be. And what this teaching does 
when it is well done, it helps us get in sync with our true selves and gives us comfort and ease. But as long as we are committed to practicing the contradiction, we are just buying loads and loads of anxiety for ourselves. And and there's nobody to talk about that except the church. Yeah, if they won't, nobody will. Who? That's right. You have used an analogy in the past of, and, and I like it, uh, specifically because I've used or I've quoted you in the past of, you know, when we're reading scripture, we have to make sure that we are at least aware of our own biases reading into the text. But I have my own biases when I read, you know, Harry Potter as well. Anything I'm reading, the newspaper, the news, Facebook, I have a programmed, ingrained bias that I was born with based on the culture that I grew up in. And so when you talk about scripture, I've heard you use the analogy that scripture is is should be looked at more like a compost pile. Can you go into that a bit well what, what i what i meant is that that a compost pile if you just leave it alone uh it will sprout uh, new growth uh, and the new growth uh consists in uh, insight and courage and resolve and grace uh and uh the, the wonderful thing about a compost pile is that you don't know how it will come out. You don't know, you don't know what it's going to produce. Uh, so my use of that image is to suggest that the Bible uh, cannot be read as though everything in it had one meaning. Uh, it's more ambiguous. It's more open. It's more risky. It's more demanding. It's more imaginative than to think that it is a flat statement that you once get and you're done. Now, the the point of all that is to say, if we're serious about the Bible, we must be engaged in interpretation. Uh, So we we can't just read it out as though it's perfectly obvious. And when you get to serious interpretation, uh, that's when our fears and our hopes and our hurts uh, impinge upon us and cause us to read and understand in certain ways. So it's a very complex process, and I think that what the church needs to do uh, is to invite more people in to that uh, uh, complex process. What authoritarianism wants to do, whether it's authoritarianism of the government or the authoritarianism of church orthodoxy, wants people to think uh, that there's one answer to every question, and you just get that, and then you're done. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I like to say it's like having a teenager in the house. And having a teenager in the house means... You've got to endlessly renegotiate everything, uh, and and that's how it is in biblical interpretation, uh, which is why we, which is why we keep at the task of writing new commentaries, and and why we have not yet written our final sermon, but we keep writing fresh sermons because the, the task of interpretation is endlessly demanding, and we need to equip and empower people uh, to engage in that process, because what that process uh, does is it militates against every authoritarianism. How do we deal with texts that have multiple interpretations or texts that are harder than I feel like my pay grade allows me to engage in? And I'm thinking of texts like Ezekiel and water wills in the sky and 
I yeah. really struggle with those. So how does someone like myself even begin to engage in that outside of the trite answers of, well, just read it and pray on it. And, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's well, not going to be good I, enough I, for me. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think some of them are very hard and there's some that I don't understand. But I always, <coughs> I always like to ask two questions of text like that. One is, can you think of a reason why somebody included it in the Bible? What did they think they were doing with that? And that requires imagination. And the second question is, if this, if this text doesn't make any sense to me, who can I think of in the world today that might take up this text and find it meaningful? What that, what that does is to break me out of my little cozy uh, interpretation cell to allow meanings other than the ones that are obvious to me. Now, that doesn't solve, that doesn't solve everything, but it can open things up. Just to clarify that, you're meaning not who can I find that can speak with authority on this, but who can I try to put myself in the view of or the culture of and try to read the text that way? And, and that's have it, correct. That's okay. I just wanted that, to... That's right. That's right. If you, if you uh, take, for example, um, uh, the story of Ruth, uh, Catherine Sackenfeld, an Old Testament scholar, uh, did a lot of work on uh, uh, on family structure in Southeast Asia. She spent a lot of time over there, and what she discovered is uh, that they they read over there, the people she dealt with, read the story of Ruth as being basically about the tricky interaction between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Well, that's not, you know, that's hardly a question that comes up in our interpretation of Ruth. So, you know, our uh, people in different cultural settings uh, will find ways into texts that do not occur to us. I recently spoke with... um. Uh, a gentleman out of Arkansas who wrote the Forgotten Books of the Bible, and we dealt with, he dealt with Ruth in that. And something that stuck with me since reading it is is the role of the Redeemer, and if there's a vernacular for that for today's society, like if that role still needs to exist, should it exist, and can it exist? And I still exactly. don't, I still don't know if it does exist. If if there's anything like that, and I feel like if there's not, there there should be, but I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's worth working on. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. When I take away how do I know what I'm reading is true? Well, you you uh, you you test it out by saying, uh, "What if I lived?" Uh, I think it's a practical test. What if I lived according to this insight? What would happen to me? What would I do? Yeah. And uh, if it if it leads to uh, behavior that is. Uh, that you sense is not appropriate, uh, then that cannot be truth. That's what I think. I wanted to ask, so I heard you in an interview, and I feel like it was years ago uh, before I ever decided to do this, but I can't source where it was, and so I hope I'm not taking it out of context. I, I might be, and if I am, tell me, and we'll yeah, leave it in, and okay. I'll eat that crow. Um, I heard you say so, something that the that the Old Testament and the destruction of Jerusalem is a parallel or can be made as a parallel to what happened to America on September 11th. And and when I heard you say that, it wasn't off-putting, but there's a part of it that reminds me of those preachers that will say, of course the hurricane destroyed Florida. There's too many gays in Florida. Or, of course this happened, this calamity happened. So am I wrong in hearing that, or did I miss the point when you said that? Well, uh, I, I don't I don't want to... Suggest that it's a one-to-one analogy, and my my inclination is not to read from the destruction of Jerusalem to 9/11, but to read from 9/11 back to the destruction of Jerusalem, because what what 9/11 suggested to us 
is that America is more vulnerable than we thought. And that was the big discovery in ancient Jerusalem. So to draw that kind of analogy helps us read the Bible more knowingly, and it may have spinoffs. If you, if you read it back and forth both ways, it may have spinoffs uh, to understand 9-11 differently, because I want to be asking, why was 9-11 such a traumatic event for us? Because there have been many crises in which many, many more people died. So my, my reading of that is 9-11 became such a crisis because of its symbolic value, not because of the actual bodies. So then I ask, well, what does it symbolize? And what it symbolizes is that America, as God's chosen people, is at risk. So that's how the back and forth, it seems to me, helps us at the same time interpret our circumstance and the circumstance in the Bible about which we're reading. But that, that, is, that, is, not, uh, that is not to say that God sent those airplanes. But, you know, what do you think? Think about that. <laughs> Let it lay there. Let it do its work. Well, I don't like to be uncomfortable. So I don't. I don't really want. I don't really want to let it lay there. I will. But I, if there's anything I've learned this year, it's I grow when I'm uncomfortable, and I hate every single minute of it. Of um, course, of course. Which is why the preacher gets such resistance. Yeah. Because it's uncomfortable, uncomfortable, and I don't want to be uncomfortable. It's something I'm wrestling with now, and I spoke with the gentleman that listens to the show yesterday, and just called me out of the blue, and it's something we talked about. How do I wrestle with, or how would you recommend someone wrestle with the the counter testimonies that we find in Scripture? And so, like, I have promises that God will never leave me for forsake me, but a lot of places in the Old Testament, He certainly appears to do so. Like, I'm I'm going to be here, and I'll be gone for a bit. I'll be back, and when I get back, we'll be good. Or like, I have you know the Old Testament violence of God, and I have the love your neighbor version that's not the same. So how do I? How, how can well, I sit in my, with in my Old Testament theology, I, uh, I uh, tried to lay out the tension between the core testimony and the counter-testimony. That's what I called it. And sometimes the, the counter-testimony of the Bible that tells against the core testimony strikes us as true. So that's also biblical. Uh, so uh, if, if one is a pastor and one is experiencing... Uh, the absence of God or the violence of God. The work of the pastor is not to talk them out of that. The, the work, the work of the pastor is to help them live with it and see what comes of it. So those texts are are really important because they are so close to lived reality. And and the the Bible is not a it's not an escape hatch. Uh, that lets us out of all the trouble stuff. But what the Bible does is to help us process all that trouble stuff by giving us texts that brings that stuff to speech. And if it can be brought to speech, then it can be processed. If it is not brought to speech, it will never be processed. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, And the reason I ask is, Often I find when things go wrong, I feel the absence of God. Like when, I mean, my wife is a pediatric nurse and she deals with a lot of kids with cancer. And I can't imagine if I put myself in that same mind's eye, if one of my children had cancer, that I would feel the abundant presence of God. Um, And part of me feels guilty for that. And the other part of me feels righteous in feeling that way. And so I personally just wrestle with both aspects of that. See, what I think is that that the, 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 the awareness that there are these contradictions in the Bible, what I call core and counter-testimony, is a mirror of the contradictions that we are carrying around in our bodies. Uh, So we are mixes of faith and unfaith, 
of certitude and doubt and all that, and uh, the, 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 the dominant narrative of our society requires us to pretend that we do not have that unsettlement going on in our bodies. But, but that's the truth of the human self. The human self, every human self, is a conundrum of contradictions. And our human work is to process those contradictions. And the Bible helps us do that by bringing the many facets of the contradiction to speech. So on different days in different situations, we resonate with different kinds of texts that give voice to one element of the contradiction that we are carrying in our bodies. But that doesn't devalue or de-weight the other voices. They're still present. I'm just not engaging with them right now. That's right. That's right. Huh. Yep. I like that. I don't know that I've ever heard you say that or read you say that. But I like that a lot. I actually got, when you were when you're talking about that, I got, I was trying to write it down and it didn't work very well. So luckily we're <laughs> recording this and so I'll yeah. listen to it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to switch gears a bit to, to prayer because I feel like most prayer in America is uh, trite and, and maybe that's just the circles that I'm in, but I'm finding in this season of my life that if I spend time intentionally praying that it does change me and I don't do it regularly enough, but how would you say we can engage as a, as a culture and as a religion and as a church and a people in an imaginative view of prayer? And then what, I mean, before, before you answer that, what is an imaginative view of prayer? Well, uh, I have, you may know I have published some prayers, and uh, uh, I, I think you're right. Most, uh, most uh, prayers in uh, the church are uh, pretty flat and unimaginative. So uh, my habit about praying is to uh, find an image or a metaphor and walk around it and just keep walking around it uh, so that it yields something. So you might, uh, you know, uh, do a tree or a spring of water or an orphan or a flag or, you know, any number of, of concrete objects you can think about. Or uh, a second strategy that I have found useful is to take a biblical text and pray it back to God. Uh, uh, there's a there's a marvelous example of that. I'll just uh, cite the the, uh, the text. I won't go into it, but in uh, Exodus 34 uh, six and seven, uh, there is this declaration that God is steadfast and long suffering and all that good stuff. And in Numbers 14, word for word, Moses prays that those same words back to God and lays it on God. So I think it's very useful to, to take Scripture and pray it back to God uh, in ways that are uh, demanding and honest and uncompromising, uh, so that the, the engagement uh, that we make with God uh, uh, ought to be uh, strenuous and honest, and what you can see about the prayers of the Old Testament is that the human person who prays has a great sense of entitlement in the presence of God. Most of our prayers are excessively deferential to God, and uh, there isn't much of that deference in, in Old Testament prayers, uh, so that if you just take Job as an example. Uh, Job, before God, was filled with chutzpah. And uh, I, I think that's a very healthy way to pray. I've never actually, well, besides the Lord's Prayer, I've never really tried to... Uh, I've done some Lectio Divina, but that's not quite the same as what you're saying. Um, so I do like that. I'm going to give that... <clears throat> I'm going to give that a go. I have... So I asked Brian Zahn many, many months ago... If he thought that America, the way that we're currently postured, is like a new version of Babylon, thinking of Babylon in the biblical text, I'm curious your thoughts on that analogy. 
Well, I, I think so. I, you know, I, I think the analogs are always complex. But yes, I, I, I do think that. Uh, and if you, if you read uh, the uh, characterization of Babylon uh, in the book of uh, Revelation, uh, I think it's uh, maybe chapter 18 or somewhere there, uh, it rings true because the accusation that is made of Babylon uh, is that everything and everyone has been turned into a commodity. And uh, that's pretty much the case in, uh, in capitalist America. Everything, everything and everyone has a price, and uh, that's how we operate. So I, I think there's a lot to that, yes. Thinking of America, and this is a, a question I posed actually on Facebook last night, which has gotten a bit of traction, and uh, more than I thought it would. Do you feel that we, well, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be, but, but humor me. Do you feel like we idolize currently uh, in the culture and the political climate and the empire the, the empire saturation that we have in America, the make America great again as an idol, that it has become elevated above the Bible, above Jesus, above the kingdom of God, and it, is being, it, is, it has become the focus on what we should inform our opinions of other people and our policies well, I, and our doctrine. Yes, I think that, and, and I think that that slogan uh, is profoundly racist. Uh, the, the great again that's being talked about is white supremacy. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I do think it is an idol, and uh, I think it's very uh, seductive among us. Yeah, I fully yes. agree with that. It was only great for a very small subset of human that's beings correct. that happened to live here. Uh, that <laughs> It was not great for everyone. Uh, that's right. For, for that's most, right. actually. Yep. How do we unwind that then? How, is it realistic to think that America is going to be able to unwind itself from its love affair with empire and its uh, lust for greed, or is it inevitable that we just run our course, explode like Rome did? Um, which, oddly enough, one of the comments on that question was an analogy to making Rome great again. Uh, and he made the similar correlations of you know how someone's elected, the appeal to empirism, the appeal to denialist yeah. thoughts. Uh, there was a lot of correlations that I... Yeah that I'd never thought about before, but is it, you think it's possible for us to unwind ourselves or is it just inevitable that we explain? Well, I think, I think that depends on good teaching and good preaching. And, uh, and that, that requires a great deal of courage, but I think it's our task and yeah. whether, whether it will succeed, I don't think we know. Uh, but I think, I think we have to do a lot of teaching about American history. Uh, that, that's why there is such a battle about uh, textbooks, and that's why uh, so-called Christian schools want to shellac American history. Uh, uh, they, they don't want to tell the truth about uh, slavery, about Native Americans, uh, about American history being essentially the history of brutality, etc., 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 and uh, we have a great deal of work to do about that. I want to ask you just a final question because it, if I'd, I'd like it to affect the way that everyone listening helps to raise the next generation. And so in my experience, I always feel like the generation before me feels like they have the quote unquote true theology. And if I'm honest, so do I, I think most of the time I feel like where I'm at is true because it is for me. And so with that in mind, how do we posture ourselves towards Scripture and the Bible in such a way that we don't lose the next generation? Because all signs seem to point that they are not interested in engaging in any way, shape, or form in any long-term format of church. So how do we? Yeah. How do we course and correct? I, and that? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, well, what I was going to say before you said your last sentence is, uh, I think the uh, the problem for young people uh, is not testimony of Scripture. It's the institution of the church, and uh, the the church uh, will have to find uh, very different and very fresh ways of uh, living out its life, and uh, that really is beyond my competence to know about that, but it's going to be radically new forms uh, that will feel uh, very uncomfortable and uh, displacing for very many of us. Yeah. Well, as we alluded to earlier, the uncomfort is usually when you grow, but I, right. I don't like it either. 
So that's right. It's, it's, that's right. Buckle up. Yep. It's going to be it's going to be a horrible ride. And hopefully the end is good. Who do you think besides yourself are for those listening? And we'll close with this are some some poetic or prophetic voices that are currently in 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 our purvey now that people that want to get engaged in uh, imaginative uh, views of scripture, imaginative views of prayer, uh, or just other viewpoints. Who would be some people, uh, including yourself, that you would that you would direct people to? Well, Jim Wallace at Sojourners is certainly one. Um, Michael Lerner, uh, who is uh, the editor of uh, the uh, Jewish Journal Tikkun. Um, but I don't. I don't uh, keep a list of that. I suspect we all have a list like that. I think uh, William Barber, who is uh, leading the Poor People's March. Uh, I suspect uh, Bishop Curry of the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. uh, is out in front on stuff like that. Uh, uh, One of the but, things that I'm liking in that list is they're not all Baptists. They're not all Catholic. They're not all Protestant. Like they're. They're different channels, uh, which I think is a, right. a beautiful yeah. picture of, of ecumenism. Like it's they, they just turn up everywhere. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but right. but engaging yep. in that forces you to deal with scripture in a different viewpoint in and of itself because they're coming from a different background. So that's that's I li- right. I like I like that part of that list. So well, good. Yep. yep. Doctor Brueggemann, thank you so much for coming on today. I, it was a pleasure, a genuine pleasure to speak with you. So I'm so thankful for you coming on. Well, it's great to talk with you. All right, so you're all here with me. I can't... mm, So good. So good. Walter Brueggemann is one of the smartest people I've ever spoken with, and I'm so thankful that he was able to come on. I hope that you got as much out of that as I did, specifically thinking about it in terms of this election cycle and what the counter-narrative of Scripture is and, and how we should really posture ourselves to not just the Old Testament but the New Testament and the underlying overarching theme of scripture. So, so thankful that I was able to talk with Walter. Another thing I am thankful for. So this show is about to hit its annual anniversary and I have no signs that we'll be slowing down anytime soon. I am so excited for that. So thankful for that. And honestly, so blown away that so many of you are engaging in the show. I would encourage you to continue to share the show on social media, tell your friends, family, please rate and review the show. And as a second little bonus, a few episodes back with Paul Thomas about the Butterflies book and the overarching love story of God and the Bible and scripture and what that means for humanity as we try to relate to the divine. Paul has quite a bit of knowledge about El Salvador and a bit more knowledge of of Latin America and the history there and the culture there because he spent some time there. And... I know that I just don't have that knowledge, and I've learned so much uh, from talking with Paul. And so he offered to talk a bit about the canonization and all of the services that that went around in the fall for the beautification of Oscar Romero into into sainthood and what that looks like in the context around the socio-political climate, what the church climate was at the time, guerrilla warfare, just so much there. And the feedback from the first part of that bonus episode that many of you have heard has been amazing. And so as an appreciation gift and token uh, to all the patron supporters, the other parts of that are available at patreon.com slash can I say this at church. I'm trying to find many different and engaging ways to thank you for your support. And I can't think of a better way than to give y'all just some special nuggets that you won't get elsewhere. You are one of the reasons that this show continues to be here a year later, and I am so thankful for you, and I would encourage you to do that if you're able in any way or capacity. If you're not, I still love you, and I'm thankful that you're listening each week, and I'm so happy at the growth of this show, and I can't wait to see what happens next year. And so here we go. A few minutes of part two of the Oscar Romero bonus episodes, just to give you a taste of what you'll hear on Patreon. So there we are. We've got this oligarchical class of overlords, and they start to hate Romero. He is a thorn in their side. They want to kill him. In fact, when the assassination happens, they turned it into a little fundraiser. They had a little lottery where people pitched in some money, and then they drew straws to see who would have the privilege of murdering the archbishop of their country. And on the evening before Romero was assassinated. He addressed the armed forces, you know, the the soldiers of the armed forces 
directly. And he told them that it's their own people that they're killing and that no soldier is obliged to obey a command that is contrary to the command of God, thou shalt not kill. And talking directly to the members of the armed forces, he famously said, he said, in the name of God and in the name of this suffering people whose cries rise up to the heavens every day more tumultuously, I beg you, I beseech you, I order you, stop the repression. So now the government's looking at him and he's saying, no, he's stepping too directly on our toes. From a government perspective, he was a guerrilla sympathizer. Um, they had very little voice. In order to have their voice heard, they marched into the city and they took over the cathedral downtown where Romero was said mass on Sunday. And Romero empathized with them in a sense. I mean, he, he, he was of the opinion, look, if this is a constitutional democracy, then we have to let people participate in it. If we don't give them a voice at the ballot box, if we don't let them give them the right to assemble, if we don't give them the right to form a political party and get elected to the legislative assembly so they can express their opinions and the whole legislature can vote on them like you do in a civilized country, if we don't give them that, then the only way they have to express themselves is taking over the cathedral. So if they do that, you know what I'm going to do? I hope people listen to them. I'm going to go say mass at the church down the road. And the government sees that as, oh, he really, he, he loves these people. And now he's talking to our people. The music in today's episode was brought to you by artist, band, musicians called Shofar Band. From their new album that launched in 2018 entitled Behold. You can find more information about the band at www.showfarband.com and that's spelled S-H-O-F-A-R band B-A-N-D dot com As always, you can also find the music featured in today's episode on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist. Christ the Lord.